competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art of War podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Nadavati. Hello, hello. And Adam Camilleri. Oh, hi there. Do not adjust your sets. This is not Art of War Done Under. This is not Forge Narrative. This is the Art of War, <laughs> where we're 40,000 podcast. We're going to change it up just a tad bit today because Mr. Nadavati pulling down a big tournament this past weekend, and we want to ask you how you did it. Yeah, I'm super excited for it. Ask away. A boy went and did a thing, man. He went and did a thing. And now we have to, we have to, sh- you guys have to shake it up and call in soggy old Adam. It's amazing. I love it. Well, look, this is part one of a part two conversation. Thank you, everyone, for finding us and joining us here. Uh, If you would like to listen to part two, it does require that you subscribe to the website. Most of the times, you can actually check out part two of the Death Guard conversation that we had uh, on YouTube right now. Awesome episode, by the way. Awesome episode. Yeah, we let that one out for the general public because we thought it was so awesome seeing Death Guard coming out of the woodworks after this balance data sheet and give you guys all a taser of what that part two is and all that action-packed goodness. So part two of this episode will certainly be action-packed as well. Just an example. So again, we're going to be leading this down and talking about the list that you took, Mr. Nadavati, and a little bit how you played on the table, how you explored the missions, uh, you know, what's your your take on secondaries, maybe depending on a little bit about who your opponents are, or at least the round of the mission itself. Uh, and then later on in the episode, we're going to have a cool segment we call the Brutal But Cunning. We talk about a, a combo that got you through the weekend beyond your amazing skill. I'm really excited to talk about it. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm super- Super pumped for this one. Um, people, are, for the longest time, there's been a lot of internal debate in the craft wheel chats. What is better? Is it Wolfway? Is it um, Hail of Doom or Ignore's Cover? Which we're going to break down in a second for you guys. Um, and that discussion, I think, has now been solved by dint of, I think, Nick's result has put one over the top. But um, load it up whenever you're ready, boys. Yeah, what did, what did you take? What was your list, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just kind of read through it top to bottom. It is uh, Hail of Doom and Masterful Shots, that custom craft that Adam just alluded to. I went for two detachments, a patrol and an outrider. I had a ton of fast attacks in this one. Um, I had two seer councils on foot, two two-mans. They didn't take up any force works. One had the protect jinx, and the other had quicken and restrain. Baharath, he was a awesome baby bird, the, the phoenix lord. I had three Farseers, two of them were on foot, one had Guide and Fortune, he also had the Weeping Stones for an extra Fate die, the other one had the Will of Azuryan and the Fateful Divergence spell, and then the final Farseer was a Farseer Skyrunner, he had Doom, Ghostwalk, and he was the Warlord with Mark of Incomparable Hunter and the Kurnaz Bow, so we'll get into that for sure. Uh, In troops, uh, I had actually two troops even though I only needed one to fill my compulsory, I needed 10 Guardian Defenders and you know 5 Rangers that had the Wireweave net. A uh, bunch of elites as well. We had two units of nine Dire Avengers. Uh, they had the extra cannon or a catapult on the Exarch, and one of them had the Stand Fern upgrade to make them all OPSEC. Unit of five Banshees. Uh, the Banshee Exarch was the Super Stand Exarch Lady with the piercing strikes to give her uh, two damage on all of her attacks. And then she had Mirror Swords, which basically makes you have double attacks. So she has ten attacks swinging in at two damage each, plus one to wound. She's awesome. And then she also had the Crone Scream Relic to uh, do some mortals when she charges in. Had a Wraith Lord. This guy was, uh, he was a no choice. No way. Yeah, we, seriously, we had a Wraith Lord in here. It's bringing back 4th edition. So cool. Yeah. Um, the Wraith Lord had a Ghost Glaive and double Shuriken Cannons. What a hero. Um, not one, but two Warwalkers, also Shuriken Cannons. There's this theme here because uh, Halo Doom loves that Shuriken <laughs> Cannon. Um, we had uh, a lot of fast attacks in this. It's got two Vipers, also Shuriken Cannons. Two units of three Wind Riders. They're just Shuriken Catapults. Nice, cheap 60 points. Uh, one big, chunky unit of Wind Riders. Nine bikes with all shuriken cannons uh and then a unit of nine swooping hawks that exarch also had the relic for the five of female pain on the whole unit and then to round it all out we got the spicy little webway gate all right explain that because a lot of people seem to be juries out about how they actually deliver this stuff well maybe we'll get there i have a lot of questions okay just start fire away <laughs> i mean this, I, I get it um, the web gate is the poignant piece. This is the piece of this list that a lot of people look at and either scratch their head or be like, this is the master. This is the like the next level. Um, when I see a web gate in a list, I assume I'm going to see multiple units of banshees, striking scorpions. I'm going to see melee assets. You have, to my to my mind, you have one melee unit to deliver through the web gate into combat. So how are you using the rest of it? Because the rest of it looks to be like savage, a savage shooting list. How are you using that to, with the web gate? Wait, gate. How does it make sense? Well, it's actually, the web gate is not 
not used in the traditional sense in my list as, as it would in like that kind of style where you're delivering close combat units. To give everyone a sense of what the what Blade Gate does, it's basically an Eldar fortification, which is two giant Eldar spires sticking out of the ground. They have to be placed within six inches of each other, and they kind of act like another board edge for your strategic reserves. So the Webway Gate, uh, it, it infiltrates, so you can deploy it um, not only in your deployment zone, but up to 12 inches away from your opponent's deployment zone, pretty much wherever you want. It still has to obey the three inches away from terrain rules, but the spires are pretty narrow, They're just and they don't have to be next to each other next to each other, so they it's not impossible to place this thing in a decent spot. But it's not easy to place it wherever you want either. What it does is it lets you have the number of command points it costs to put units into strategic reserve rounding down. So you can actually get zero to nine power or one to nine power level for free because that would cost you one CP halved is 0.5 rounded down to zero. And you can actually get 29 power level, which is usually what I did. Um, some just choice of units, but 29 power level. Um, and I would put them in all reserve for 1.5 CP rounded down to one. So it saves you a ton of command points there and gives you a lot of flexibility with deployment. And then you, they can actually come out of the webway gate instead of a board edge. And then to do that, they have to be within six of both the spires. And then they don't care how close they are to the enemy. So they don't have to respect the nine inches away. They can just show up four inches away and charge or even engagement. So that's why, Adam, I guess you thought like the, the traditional sense usage is take a bunch of banshees and scorpions and just charge people because it's really easy out of this thing. Well, so that's the assumption. I was just really excited to see it obviously did extremely well. You went 8-0 and o at a very stacked Super Major. Um, yeah, actually, we didn't mention the tournament either. So I, at least I don't think it was Dallas Open, right? Yeah, it, it was a Dallas Open. It was uh, 100, 70, 180 people I think showed up the day of. It's a Super Major 8 rounds. A lot of Art of War players in attendance. We got John and Jack, uh, Andrew Gagne repping the scene. Um, I think we Art of War plays first, third, fourth, and fifth. So very proud of the team. It wasn't just my victory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. This is a heavy MSU build, right? Yeah, essentially, the only things that are bigger than the minimum are your Wind Riders, your Swooping Hawks, and your Dire Avengers, right? And that's purely just to, to, to make the maximum amount of effect from, from Hail of Doom, is that correct? Well, so, yeah, I, the reason, kind of, to answer your first question, Hail of Doom or Althway, I guess, um, I really felt like with Tyranids entering the meta, I really needed to have high volume fire at that strength six shuriken cannon profile it's great into all of those medium bugs pyrovores warriors ravners we keep on seeing just firing shuriken cannons is great um you shooting leviathan monsters uh, this is getting a little bit into the the part two matchup section but shooting leviathan monsters it's really hard because that transhuman and the invuls so getting volume across there is really f so i really liked halo doom for that and then armor of contempt came out and then everyone's got better armor saves and people are taking terminators and one-up saves and cover and you know what's really good for that? Ignoring cover. It helps a lot. Actually, incredibly critical. So that really sealed the deal for me. And then if you're going to go with Hail of Doom and Ignores Cover as your as your traits, take a lot of guns. Take a lot of guns to make use of your Ignores Cover and your Shurikens. So the, what are the best platforms to get guns? Bikes just come stock with them. Dire Avengers have awesome, awesome cannons. Even Guardians are actually really good in this. And I basically just made a list of, of firepower. That was the thought. The, the challenge when you're making a list, with which is just guns and hyper-efficient guns and things like that, is you're one-dimensional. So things like walls, you know, line of sight blocking terrain, that's a real problem. And that's that's kind of the way I approached building this list from the ground up. Like, let's the premise is let's shoot people off the board because guns are really good. And then you know, guns aren't the only thing in the game. So how do I? What else can I take? You said Hell of Doom a few times. I want to remind everybody what it does each time a model with this attribute makes an attack with a shuriken weapon. An unmodified hit roll of six automatically wounds the target and is treated as an unmodified wound roll of six. Yes, thanks, Paul, for clarifying that. And just to add a little bit more nuance, to that all shuriken weapons when you roll a six to wound get plus two to their AP characteristics. So an AP1 Guardian gun will go to AP3, and an AP2 Dire Avenger Catapult will go to AP4. So six is hit and six is to wound, which is a lot with these high volume of shots uh, are super deadly. And, and, and with the Ignore's cover, if somebody's in light cover, it's a pseudo AP, extra AP on top of that because you're denying one of their save in addition. So in reality, in effect, you know, you've got AP5, AP4 on a lot of these weapons when it breaks down to how much you're negating. Um, on basic weapons. Really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. On your like tools of the trade, just just the the basic stuff. Um, I noticed you've spammed a lot of um the single vehicle unit, the the Warwalkers, the Vipers. Um, how did they perform for you? Do you think they're worth it? Because they are quite cheap point per wound. Um, yeah, how did how did they go for you? 
Yeah, they were critical. Uh, I actually played against, in round four, I think it was, Anthony Birdsong, another phenomenal player. He was running Craftworld Hail of Doomlist also, but he omitted a lot of these cheap vehicles. He had no Vipers, um, and he had a lot more powerful big units, like he had nine-man Windrider bikes with Shuriken Catapults. He had three yep. big units of vendors, 20-man Guardian units. So what they let me do is they let me start initiating trade wars. So a lot of times what happens is people will hide from me because I have such crazy firepower and they're like i don't want to get shot by that so then what happens is i need to go get an objective because i'll take stranglehold or i'll need to go hold something and if i go put my big unit of 10 dire vendors there or nine bikes my opponent's like okay i'm gonna go kill those bikes because they're eldar and they're really easy to kill and it's really awesome if i kill nine bikes with cannons because that's a lot of points so being able to throw a little viper out that's move 16 base auto advances 22 and just put it on an objective to get a stranglehold. One gets me immediate points, and then two, it requires some sort of response from my opponent because he's got to kill that viper. Otherwise, I'm going to not only get those stranglehold points, but I will also hold an objective in my next turn. And if not kill the viper, they'll have to go contest that objective somehow. In any case, when they do something, you know, when they contest this objective, shoot the viper, charge the viper, whatever they do, they expose a unit, and then I can start interacting with them. I can blow up that unit. I've gotten them away from the wall, which is the big problem here. And it, I, it cost me a 45-point viper that also got me a stranglehold. And usually people don't have a plethora of really cheap units like vipers themselves. That's kind of unique to Eldar in this aspect, and unique to my list. So... You know, maybe the first turn they'll have something cheap like that, like a land speeder storm. But then after that, they're going to have to use like a unit of Vanguard veterans or something real. And it just snowballs into this horrible trade war that gets them into a lot of trouble over time. I love that. I love I love the way you explained that as well. Uh, also, I would like to point out that um, Adam completely disrespected Wraith Lords going in the webway gates. Did that ever happen? <laughs> that happened eight out of eight games. <laughs> that that oh, was like a move. <laughs> Damn. I forgot, I, t- I forgot it was there. No, no one knows I what they do anymore. Yeah. They don't do anything. That's the secret. <laughs> That's the secret sauce. I had such a great this guy, and, and oh my god. What, what well, is- they are T8, you know, and I mean, granted, there are lots of things in the game that can deal with T8, uh, T8 but it, I think it's, cool. it, it's, a, it's a pretty solid, you know, something has to dedicate, someone has to dedicate something to it, something real, like you were, like, you were talking about thought that was honestly why he made it into my list and what i was thinking so um you can he's core which is really interesting because then you can put all your buffs onto him so you could fortune him and you can use will of osrian to make him opsec and then just let him go like put him on an objective in the midboard and be like this is ridiculously hard to kill for what it is it's tough to say it's minus one damage has feel no pain it's objective secured you're gonna have to really put resources into dealing with this wraith lord of all things and whether or not it's killing your contesting it doesn't really matter to me but again i'm trying to just initiate these trade wars where my opponent has to respond to something ineffectively. So if they can effectively respond to Vipers, maybe I'll put a tougher Wraith Lord out there and see what I can get out of him. Uh, alternatively, as I used him, he he kind of reserved himself in the Webway Gate for not too many CP, and then he could potentially launch those charges. So almost the way you use the Scorpions or Banshees charging at it, like Adam was saying. Um, it, I just wanted to draw everyone's attention back to the Warwalkers for a second, because this was a little bit that I, um, when you asked me to come on the show, I actually unpacked the Warwalkers a little bit, because I didn't quite understand why you picked them. And now I think I get it. So they're like a Viper. They move 10 inches. They um, they are quite durable for the points, the toughness, six, six wins and a three-up save. But they have this one thing the Viper doesn't. It's called invulnerable save. So they give you an outlet to use your fate dice if there's something on an objective. But they only have, Let's say they only have three LAS cannons coming at, like, you know, that they can allocate to shoot your Warwalker. The Viper probably dies. The Warwalker, like, if you have one fate dice, probably lives. It's actually kind of nuts. Yeah, I've had Warwalkers live through all kinds of stuff. In my game, I actually went against Anthony. He, um, I was, we got ourselves in this stalemate situation, exactly what I was describing, where we were both hiding behind our walls, because either of us would blow each other up if we exposed ourselves. We're playing such high firepower, and otherwise very squishy. Speed is the only thing that's, like, keeping this game in check. Speed and hiding. So, I'd put my Warwalkers out as screens, because he had all his Dire Avengers deep striking and stuff to try to get angles. So when I put my Warwalkers out of screens, he brought his Dire Avengers in and was like, okay, at least I'll kill the Warwalker. And with Fate Dice and the Invulnerable save, even in Hail of Doom, these these Dire Avengers didn't kill the Warwalkers. So now he didn't even get a trade. He just got killed. Awesome. Um, not that only that, obnoxious. they also advanced deploy. <laughs> They're really cool for that too, because a big problem yes. when, with squishy little Eldar is there's only so many spots to hide. And if you're not hiding, you're getting shot, especially if you're going second. It's really rough. So that's why I use the Webway Gate to allow myself to put a ton of units in reserve for not many command points. So that's less real estate of the table. That's My army's footprint is smaller. I have fewer models to deploy, which means I can hide it in smaller nooks and crannies. And then still, I have trouble. So 
the Rangers advanced deploy, the War Walkers advanced deploy. So maybe there's some line of sight obscuring terrain, a little bit out of my deployment zone, but I wouldn't normally be able to use. Now I can for these units. So I'm really trying to maximize my hiding spots well. That's, that's really well thought out. Um, one more question I have for um, on your list. Um, you, you mentioned you spend more than you needed to on troops, and the troops' choices are usually considered to be the weakest point of the craft with the Asarani book. Um, why'd you spend more than a minimum? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. This is this all ties back to the Webway Gate. This actually answers your first <laughs> question also. Um, so as I've said, big problem with this army, walls, line of sight blocking terrain. If my opponent can just hold objectives from outside of line of sight terrain or like a little bit of the objectives behind a wall so he can sit behind a wall and hold it, I need to do something because I can't, like 80% of my list needs line of sight to function. And so I can't see you, I can't do anything. That's where Guardians specifically and the Webway Gate come in. And... What I do is, I, every single game, the Guardians start in the Webway Gate, and usually one unit of Dire Avengers does as well, almost always. And it's usually the OPSEC one. So the Webway yeah. Gate, if I'm able to, I will put it kind of in midfield in such a way that it can always spit out some Guardians, and then those Guardians will have a not-too-hard charge, or spit out the Dire Avengers, and have a not-too-hard charge onto an objective on my opponent's side of the field if there's something relatively nearby in the midfield. And there's usually something relatively nearby in the midfield because there's objectives in the midfield, and my opponent probably puts something over there. So that's when my Farseer, who has Ghost Walk, will cast plus two to charge. I, if I think this is the way the game needs to be played, I'll be fishing for the charge fate die on the on the miracle fate dice thing so then i have guardians coming out of the webway and ideally they're not nine inches away from an enemy unit they're like four but maybe they're nine maybe they had to come in not from the webway it's strategic reserves you know nine inches away is nine inches away wherever it is so if you have a six on a fate die plus two for ghost walk plus one is the worst you could roll on a d6 that's already nine inches you're making a charge out of reserve guaranteed as long as you pass your ghost walk which passes on like a five so that's really cool because then you can sling these objects dudes from out of nowhere onto an objective doesn't always work like you can't charge guardians in a sanguinary guard and expect to survive and hold an objective but you can absolutely toss guardians into like cultists or a land speeder storm or something crappy that people use to be screens and the guardians will survive especially like I'll fortune guardians to survive just to steal your objective because that gives them like a four and really puts uh, what could be a staring contest kind of game where, where they're hiding behind walls and getting eights and I'm hiding behind walls and getting eights on primary if I give you a four a couple times because I have this webway gate well now you're losing it's true yeah. I don't like the sound of that uh, what, what's your favorite line Nick it makes perfect sense <laughs> Makes perfect sense. That's makes perfect actually, sense. That's, that's an inside <laughs> joke from uh, long, long ago when we're playing tons of stream games. John Lennon, I, for whatever reason, just adopted the phrase, totally makes sense. He would say that after like every other thing someone said in a worm game. Like, he's like, <laughs> I'm going to shoot you. And John's like, totally makes sense. I'm like, John, shut up. So now I've just started saying it. It's an excuse to go back and watch some of those games. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Catch that in the worm. Uh, so let's talk about uh, secondaries a bit. Uh, yeah, so do you have some secondaries that you that you have just like your go tos that you think you, that you're going to pick for every game? You know, kind of independent of matchup, or is your is your list designed to take advantage of any of the the secondaries? It's got uh, a really cool baseline secondary game plan, which I think is really important for playing an army like this. A lot, and my army actually started off without a secondary game plan. It's like I'm just going to take the killy stuff and kill people. Worry about secondaries later. And I Ooh. found myself killing my opponent and losing a mission. Speaking my language. Right. Right. It's, Losing the missions, right? Paul's language. So. But win a lot of games, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, Yikes. no, I, I realized that I could not build a plan without secondaries, at least not into the caliber opponents like uh, John and Siegs and Jack. So, um, I, I started building towards Stranglehold because I find, you know, Stranglehold, if you're playing the primary mission at all, you're also getting Stranglehold. So, that's easy enough. And then that's when it gets hard. What else do I take? Eldar can really, really do psychic secondaries very well. They have the uh, magical spell Quicken, which you can use to fly up with like a Farseer on a bike, which I took, and then he's going to cast Warp Ritual in the center of the board, and if you're really concerned about your opponent denying it, you can use a Fate Die to just say, I got a 6 plus a D6, so it's probably really high and hard to deny. And then your Quicken guy, who's all the way in the back, not in deny range, is also... I, I always save the Fate Die for Quicken, actually, because Warp Ritual passes on like a 3. And then I auto pass quicken, and then zoop 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 twenty two inches right back behind my safe wall, and then just boom 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 three times, and you get twelve points right there. So stranglehold's going to happen, and psychic ritual is really hard to stop. Very rarely would I not take it. Basically, thousand sons, tyranids, and sisters were the only times I didn't take it. Um, I didn't play against black templars, but they might stop me. Anyone who has like strats to deny your powers, it would annoy me with it. So 
I also have to the last build in really well to my list. It's a unit of nine jet bikes, unit nine swooping hawks, and Baharoth. So the nine hawks, they, are, they basically took zero damage the entire tournament. They flew out, shot 36 shots, and then flew back behind a wall because they have the sky leap ability when they teleport. So they just don't take damage. And then the bikes, I use so carefully. I like snipe the most extreme angles. I'll forego picking like the best target to keep these things safe. And I'll just delete something and then use a six inch battle focus from the stratagem to go back behind my wall. And I'll just basically destroy whatever you give me and then retreat to behind safety and like throw out a viper as the thing I'm exposing this turn to go get my points. So I shoot you off the middle objectives, put a viper out there to get my stranglehold and go back in my hidey hole so you can't retaliate into anything real. And over time you end up losing because essentially i can keep this up forever i've got like so many vipers war walkers rangers guardians coming out of reserve dire vendors coming out of reserves the wraith lord like it's it's endless how much junk i have certainly five turns worth so i'll get stranglehold for five turns because i'll shoot you off that middle objectives i will get a 12 on ritual unless i'm playing a weird match in which case i'll go for retrieve knockman data or something like that and then i'll go for to the last which really puts pressure on you to come kill my to the last which you can't get line of sight to and what this does is, is not only is an awesome plan to score secondary points it also puts the onus on my opponent to go do something and the only way to do something in 40k is to come out of your hidey hole so they're going to come out from behind those walls that i hate so much and then it's shuriken time i just don't see how uh the the bikes live the entire game but then you mentioned you know the discipline that you you show with when using them but how do you what's the thought process around that well so i always base it on my opponent's ability to kill the bikes well like if i think they can reasonably get to me I won't take to the last. I'll take something else. Uh, I'll look for no prisoners or something. Tyranids might inspire such a choice because they have like a flyrant that can move 30-something inches and then charge me. And then that's pretty brutal. I don't want that. I'd mess my bikes up. So it's really, you're not trying to kill your opponent with this army. That's, if your opponent allows you to, you have all of the damage output in the world, you will absolutely kill your opponent. What you're trying to do is just independently win the game. I'm barely playing with my units. If you if you watch some of my stream games, you can catch them on War Games Live. We're actually going to play this, um, I guess, by the time this podcast releases. We played this game last week in the war, and you can check it out there. I played against Richard Ziegler's Tau. But um, I'm mostly just killing whatever little stuff you give me. I'm not going to your side of the board aggressively ever to try to get an angle. A lot. I have 16 inches of movement. I can move 22 and shoot with some of my units. And I don't really ever do that. Because as soon as I do that, I, I go out there and I kill whatever I kill. And then whatever went out there it is instantly dead. It makes the game all about damage, which I found was very ineffective. Instead, what was really effective is focusing on sitting on my side of the board, scoring whatever objectives I can score safely, and then, because whatever objectives I can score safely are behind walls. And in a format with symmetrical terrain, which is what Dallas Open was, which GW is, um... That means my opponent can hold that same number of objectives safely. So if, it's, if all the objectives are in the open, okay, we'll both score zeros forever. If all the objectives are behind line of sight, okay, we'll both score eights forever. And then to disrupt the primary, my guardians show up and steal objectives. So that puts pressure on them to, to do something because now we're going eight, 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 eight for primary, but you've gotten a couple before a couple times. So secondary, same thing. If I do stranglehold to the last and psychic ritual successfully, that's 42 points out of 45. All right, so I'm scoring 97 points if I can get my primary taken care of, and assuming your primary is a little bit worse because my guardians did their job, and I, I doubt your secondary score is a 45 also, I guess I'm winning. And then that makes people have to come out of their hidey holes, mm. which lets me shoot them on my terms, so I don't have to go out of my way to shoot them. Does it feel like it's difficult for your opponents to, once you get any kind of advantage, to, to come back in the game, or do you, do you think it's just on... Yeah. I mean, through the same rinse and repeat. It's it's almost cl clinical in those games where you, the, the list is designed to start with an advantage, and then once it has an advantage, it's almost impossible to, to come out from having to, from having a disadvantage. If I'm if this list is up on you, and then you're trying to do something to stop it, it's very very hard to get out from under that hole. And then the challenge is obviously when your opponent actually has some sort of advantage on you, and then then you have to get real creative because we're playing off the script. So. Uh, in a lot of high-end 40k jargon, we talk about uh, scoring ability. Different factions and different lists have different ceilings of scoring ability. How many points can they score reliably every game? We talk about things like the bus stop lists being one of the highest ways to score points. 
T-Suns, Dark Angels, they can just stand still and get like minimum 85s if nothing changes on their score. Um, your The list you've built and the ones you're describing has most of the benefits of the scoring ability of a bus stop list whilst being ultra dynamic and deadly from range. It's really kind of a, a beautiful sweet spot in um, – because uh, – a lot of people have made an assumption, and maybe you'll, uh, you guys will back me up on this, that M- the MSU is in decline because of the durability increase from Armor of Contempt. And I think your list bucks that trend. It flies in the face of that assumption, right? That's what I was really going for. I kind of read the mm. meta um, after the balance leader sheet, which was the Wild West and still is to a degree, because uh, we're just only now starting to have results and events to look at after the armor the balance data sheet. But I figure everyone's going to immediately be like, my space marines are good, and everyone has... <laughs> space marine army right paul yeah, that is the truth it's exactly i think you just echoed what the internet is saying right now which is they're not wrong no, uh, not. no but, but if, if i can predict that with accuracy then i just have to write a list that kind of kills space marines and then tyranids came out and they're super hot and i only played against tyranids once but i, I identified earlier what is good against tyranids with an eldar i found Ulthway doesn't do enough damage in a tyranid so i had to increase the damage output to really fight them and that was going to hail of doom for me. Yeah, this Eldari have always been good at, uh, at getting through marine armor. They've all been, always been very lethal, and it sounds like you found a way to dial, quite literally dial it up to 11 uh, with these custom choices, custom yeah. trait ability choices. Yeah, for sure. The uh, There's other stuff, too, that helps me um, break these staring contests to really put pressure on my opponent, because that's all it is. The win condition for my list baseline is get them to have to do something, because then it gets worse and worse for them. It's like, once I get advantaged, that's, that's the win condition. I have to get advantage. So it's designed to start advantage, but if it doesn't, I have to get creative, and that's where things like the Guardians coming out of the webway to trash your primaries came out of. Or uh, the third Farseer on my list, he's not really necessary power-wise. I don't really cast Ghostwalk that often. Um, honestly, Will of Azurian doesn't come up as much as you think it would. And there's not really a good fortune target, especially if I remove this Wraith Lord. So I was, was going to ask you about this. Yeah, so the reason there's the fir- third Farseer is because sometimes I go for a big Eldritch Storm. Mm-hmm. Like Eldritch Storm at plus three, D3 plus plus three mortals on like an army ends games. We actually saw it in the finals of the Dallas Open. A big thing that I was concerned about was if my opponent gets a nice big line of sight blocking piece of terrain that they can hide behind and really hide their whole army, and then they'll put their whole army behind that thing and then I'll never get a shot all game. Well, if I if they put their whole army behind this big line of sight blocker, then they're all going to be within six inches of a certain point, which I can nuke and do a ton of mortal wounds to do damage behind the walls. And then that, plus the Banshees, I, I can interact with people behind terrain a little bit. I found that to be enough. Um, how many out of the eight games you played, how many times did you use Eldritch Storm? Um, I used it in both the games I was on stream, the semifinals and the finals, yep. though I used them both very differently. Um, in the finals, I used them in the traditional sense to just nuke an army. And in the mm-hmm. semifinals, I used it very pinpointed to kill a single Terminator that was saw that. out of line of sight, because it was a, to the mm-hmm. last Terminator. I needed to kill it to get, a, get the edge in a very close game. So... I was creative. But I think those were literally the only two times I actually did an Eldritch Storm. And how many times did you tell your opponent about it in great detail multiple times? I mean, you, you just gotta... Every game started with, do you know what Eldar does? Have you read my book? And then I got varying degrees of answers like, uh, yeah, I, I'm the, I know everything. And then some people are like, what, what is a webway gate? I've never even seen one of those. So I, I definitely made sure to kind of walk them through it. And if I saw them going for something, like in the finals, my opponent was trying to deep strike his sanguinary guard in a position where he could potentially charge my farseers, sounds awesome. But then I reminded him, like, all of my bikes will instantaneously intercept them and they will all die because I got nine shuriken cannons pointed right at them and then it was like oh yeah thanks I won't do that I just try to play like that yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, for me like Eldritch Storm is such a psychological play in addition to its actual lethality that it feels like that third Farseer gets like value by dint of you being able to say a bigger number when your opponent questions how bad it's going to be. Definitely. Um, There's a big difference between D3 plus 2, which is what two Farseers will give you, or D3 plus Mm -hmm. 3. D3 plus 3 has the ability to roll 5s and 6s to get 6 wounds onto characters. Most characters that are tough are still 6 wounds, so that really, if your opponent knows like his character could just die because I say so and roll a little well. Um, no say in the matter for him. They might play it totally differently, like you said, Adam. You have to respect it. We've seen it do what thirty something wounds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mortal wounds, not just like make some saves it's like put 25 models back in the box and then you're also averaging five on your d3 plus three which is how many five mans are there in the world many five mans mm-hmm. i like 
pick up and picking up entire units. It feels like such a crazy tool in the mirror match as well. Like who's going to get in position to put out the first deadly Eldritch Storm, you know, yeah. supported by Miracle Dice and whatnot. And to go even further with the psychological aspect, um, mm. in certain matches, like in the... Uh, in the quarters deployment, like the, the one that Destin Zeal gives you, where you start nine inches off that center circle um, and create a little semicircle with your opponent, you can, I, I slip out that I could totally redeploy with Phantasm. I tell all my opponents I can redeploy with Phantasm, so they shouldn't get too married to where my units are. But um, one thing I, I also remind them is that my Farseer can redeploy to the very corner tip of the front of my deployment zone. And from there, I have an Eldred Storm potential that is like three quarters into your deployment zone. So if you're going to try to deploy outside of range of it, it's 30 inches from my Farseer because it's 24 inches where I can put the the marker and then six inches in the marker is where the mortal wounds happen. So 30 inches away from the closest point of any part of my deployment zone is like 90% of the table. Oh, that's a lot of table. Yeah, it's it's the reach is phenomenal. It's extremely scary. <laughs> But before we get to the uh, brutal and cunning segment, you mentioned the Wraith Lord was you, know, you found that that you were limited functionality with him, maybe did not performing exactly like you expected. Would you would you make any change if you had to go to a tournament tomorrow? Would you take the exact same list because I mean obviously you can't argue with success, or would you look for some little tweaks? I've actually great question. I, I am tweaking it a tiny bit. I am taking it to a tournament two weeks from now, the Motor City Mayhem. I think it's actually like maybe one week after this podcast releases, so wish me luck. But uh currently my thoughts are the Wraith Lord's coming out and Uncle Carandress is coming in. Um Ooh. what I what I there's a few reasons for that. The Wraith Lord, uh, I reserved him pretty much every game. And maybe that was right, maybe that was wrong, but he had nothing to do on the table either when the game started, so whatever. Because at that point, he's kind of like a very overpriced warwalker walking around my backfield. So out of reserves, I, you know, he's got this grand vision if he could charge and ghost walk and, and do all that stuff. But uh, he's got four attacks with his sword, and even if he does his, uh, his sweep attack, it's, it's not that good. And he has no rerolls because I'm never casting guide on this thing, and he just lets you down. He's a real, real go letter downer, and then he doesn't have any ball, so that's also streaky. Not good. You know, streaky. whatever. Because he's like strength nine or something. I mean, strength nine. He's D three plus three damage. Look, in one game, he showed up to work and killed Armon, and in the other seven games, he didn't do a thing. Yeah, fair enough. Well, if you if you are thinking about uh, replacing with Karandras, I mean, do you do you have to reconfigure your your for, your force org at all? I do. I ran out of HQ slots in the patrol outrider scenario, so um, I'm gonna have to get another troop choice, which is gonna be five rangers to get um, the HQ slot. And the points for that are basically just gonna be a warwalker turns into five rangers and then wraith lord turns into Karandris and call it a day right there i've even thought about taking one of the two-man conclaves and turning it into a third viper because that's about the same cost to make up for the lack of resource because i'm losing like one of my skirmishing units from the wraith lord so putting in another third viper kind of replaces that and honestly i think quicken is way more important than uh protecting jinx in this army because of that psychic ritual combo and also i use it to uh i'll make three wind riders obsec with those little three mans with will of azurian and then i'll quicken them across the table to give you a four that way so by standing on your primary so quicken's critical and honestly protecting jinx i kill you either way it doesn't matter <laughs> Perspective, good, good perspective. I do like uh, Karandras space landing. Like, I mean, you can't go wrong with Karandras and Baharoth. Yeah, it's, it's a wombo combo. And a lot of times, because Baharoth is one of my tubs last, I found I wanted to use him like the, the combat Phoenix Lord beat stick he is to go be obsec, steal an objective, punch somebody in the face. and But then I'd be afraid he would die and then I would lose five points. Well, now I have Karandras. So Karandras can go out there and get himself killed, but take a lot of stuff with him. And uh, Baharoth will go get me five points also. I like it. And uh, with the Wraith Lord, I guess I, I kind of see which he's like a goalie it's kind of hanging out. But with the fact that he only had two Shuriken cannons on him, right? That's how you equipped him? Yeah, just two Shuriken cannons. Are you worried that you're going to start uh, diluting the firepower from your list? Because, I mean, you well, you really had a point. vision here I'm, with I'm uh, burning things down. I'm cannons to lose the Wraith Lord and the Warwalker to get Karandras, um and the Rangers. But honestly, the Wraith Lord started in reserve every game. So those Shuriken Cannons weren't really contributing to the battle. And then I think I still have the critical mass of damage that people will hide behind walls. And then because I have the bikes and the hawks and all that. And I think I have enough critical damage that if they'd stop hiding behind walls, they're still going to die. Because 
not I don't very 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 few things in the game survive guide on the shuriken cannon bikes with blade storm just going it down especially with doom like forget it if there's doom doom is such a, a good power like you really such just be on the lookout when it, whenever you see it I mean that's it's a go to so it is very common but uh, anything that just kind of really amps up the effectiveness of of a basically like your whole army yeah th- that's one of the things with the elder powers they're doom especially and, and jinx to a lesser extent but doom. You pick a unit and it just evaporates instantaneously because it turns all of your kind of crappy weapons into into super powered maniac weapons. Uh, big call, of, big call of the show. But Doom's the best psychic power in the game, bar none. Like it is straight up the best best psychic power in the game. Um, and anytime you can deny it, turn it off, or kill whoever's got it, you should. Well, honestly, Adam, in this list, guide is just as good as Doom because sixes hit are so much better. It's valuable. true. It's true for you for your list in particular. Guide is just as bad. Um, it's, it's actually so poignant, isn't it? But just like a cold read, you're probably right. I'm I'm trying uh, to think of another power here, that's anywhere near as as just, just always good. Before warp time and twilight pathways changed to you know it changed in their forms, they were I think just as good as activators for the units that you ha- you you know tend to bring with your army. But Doom was it's just evergreen, like pwah. Yeah, it's it's also somehow never changed. Like it's gone up and down in war value, or it's changed range, but it's the same power it's always been. Yeah, so yeah. so amazing. Uh, the reason I asked about change around the list is like there is a point where you can tinker with the list and it starts to you know, you really start to change the whole scope and the whole intent, the whole the real reason for the list. I think I'm at the point with this list where I put I've put this list on the table probably like 20, 30 times now, and I think about it a lot. So I'm I'm fine tuning every little point so precisely. Like I'm I'm replacing things with commanders, going to five HQs, Rangers. This is very deliberate in my choice i'm not starting with a rough draft and just losing the plot here i think um these are changes that work for me and specifically me with this this amount of reps and practice in my list i know a couple people have talked to me they've, they've seen this list online i haven't been hiding it and they've tried it and it hasn't been working for them hopefully this podcast will give people some ideas on how it can work but uh, i highly implore you all to really design your own list and and tweak and tone and and create it your own because there's that's part of the beauty of 40k it's such a there's no one way way to do it the truth there all right let's let's now break it down and we're in the combo segment here the brutal the cunning or the cunning more brutal depending on which side of the argument that you're on this list is just chock full of combos it probably will be hard to talk about just one but do you have a couple of go-tos something that maybe you will always save a couple of you know, command points in your back pocket or, or something that you you try to engineer uh, over the course of the of a game, depending on who you're playing against. Absolutely, one of my favorite things to do in this army is use my warlord, the the Varsier on a bike with the Kernazbo relic and the marketing comparable warlord trait uh, combo. The way this works is basically um, there's a pistol. It's called Kernazbo. It's a three shot pistol. It's 18 inches, strength five, and then it's got like no other stats. If it successfully wounds you, you take a mortal. All right, no big deal. Whatever, take a mortal, three shots. And then it's a shuriken weapon also. So with Hail of Doom, a six to hit counts as a six to wound for the purposes of everything. So that'll also be a successful wound for mortals. Mark of the Incomparable Hunter says every time you roll six to wound, you deal a mortal. These two things stack. So a six to hit with Hail of Doom counts as a six to wound. You'll take two mortal wounds, one from the bow and one from the warlord traits. If I just successfully wound you with the other shots, you'll also take mortals. And if I roll a six, because I just rolled a three to hit, and then I rolled a six to wound with that die, you're taking two mortals there. So in Hail of Doom also, fate dice are a thing, or an Eldar. So if you have hits, they count as sixes to hit for your fate dice. So a six to hit counts as a six to wound, counts as two mortals. A six to wound is a six to wound, so it does two mortals. So pretty much, the th- unless I'm thinking the Banshees are going to go out for a big Banshee turn when they advance and charge, or I need to charge with the Guardians out of a Webway gate, that was the only times I'll ever keep advances or charges. I rarely even keep saves. The only times I really keep saves are in those situations like Adam said, which is very early in the game when I have a war walker on an objective and I just kind of wanted to live through some last cannons. That's when I'll keep saves. Otherwise, I don't really with this army. It's not like I'm playing vehicles with the Avatar where I have important things I care about. Also, the, why the Wraith Lord kind of doesn't really fit. So I'll just take hits and psychic powers. Usually two powers and I'm happy because then I, I can auto-pass quicken to get my playoff. I can auto-pass Guide or Doom to make sure something dies. Um, and if I have three powers, I'll usually keep three powers for my hit dice, hit dice. But you'll end up with a lot of fours and fives, because that's two-thirds of the table, fours and fives being equal here. 
and or sorry, it's one through the table, four and five out of the D6. So especially if you roll seven dice, you re-roll three of them, you're gonna end up with lots of fours and fives. And every four or five that you keep is a six to hit or a six to wound. And when you couple with Kernos Bell, that's the best place to put it. Two mortals, two mortals, two mortals. And this thing's got battle focus. It can fly and shoot you. It can then leave. It's it's so good. I've had people engage him, and then I just it's a pistol. I mortal wound people out of the combat with me. This guy's amazing. Uh, oh, and, and you get the psychic phase too. I mean, you really can. You could dish out just an impressive amount of mortals. If you, if I take executioner instead of ghost walk, which is uh, when I'm cutting this wraith lord, probably the direction I'm going to go because I don't have a reason to have ghost walk at that point. Then the the farseer on a bike can do smite d3 mortals, executioner, oftentimes two d3 mortals, and then just boom, 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 turn the pistol sideways and shoot you for six more. He, I literally had him finish off Magnus. Finished off Demon Princes. He he, he one shot at a Carnifex. All nine wounds between Smite and this pistol. Let's it, think. Um, sorry, Adam. What what is what what is something you could kill for the twelve mortal wounds? What's the what's the craziest thing? A hammerhead. I don't know. A tank of some sort. <laughs> something really cool. <laughs> I like the Fex kill. The, the clean Fex kill felt really cool. That is pretty sweet. Um, it hurts me to the core of my being to acknowledge that there is a good pistol of relic in the game. It's been the most long. It's been the longest standing trope on Art of War Down Under that a good pistol relic is a fallacy, and none of them are worth talking about. I mean, a whole segment about this pistol. Yeah, Adam. I, I, it hurt. Like I said, it hurts, Nick. It hurts. Dante has something to say about that. Credit where credit is due. It's this pistol re- wasn't my idea. I believe some some guys over in the UK. I'm sure other people found it too. It's just a combo. But that's Matt Robinson, one of our Art of War coaches, was actually the one who told me about it. My my two tropes is that relic pistols and anything that draws a line can cannot be good in the a game. Line Stuff and, does uh, suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this this pistol is, is it's shaking me, guys. It's shaking me to the root of the root of my being. That's what um, I'm here to do. I'm here to, I'm here to shake worlds, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody should take this and please not in the games that where you verse me. That's it. Well, I like just how aggressive you're talking about being with this far seer. Far seer, I mean, got not even a handful of wounds. Well, a lot of times people will put like um something out there that it's kind of annoying for me to kill because I, I like things that are minus one damage are really good against my army. I have a lot of two damage out there. And that's when I'll just decide this guy is better than like a lot of my stuff. I'll just have him do nine wounds to something and then he'll battle focus backwards. So I don't have to use my jet bike unit or my or something like that. Like Baharoth and the Hawks leave for free. This guy is like a scalpel of death that just hits something and kills it with mortals. And for things that are vulnerable to mortals, which are oftentimes the opposite of things that are vulnerable to high damage, high volume firepower of shurikens. Um, it, it just complements really well. So I kind of pick which tool I invest in this for the turn. Uh, you can kill a riptide. You can kill a riptide. We're still going. <laughs> well, cause that's, so it's it's three d three mortals plus. So yeah, three d three plus six. If you go all out, if you go all out, you're not going to get the second trigger on executioner if it's a single model target like a rhino or something, because you won't kill a model. Um, so, but technically, technically, you can do fifteen, right? I mean, yes, te- technically, you could do eighteen. You could use a fate die for the smite, and then you only have to roll uh, yeah. a five up for the, you know, makes, <laughs> makes getting an eleven a little more reasonable. And then you you do d six mortals, two d three mortals, and six mortals. You actually I, sh- I shouldn't have said anything. No, I, I, have said anything. I, I lied. You could go more. We're going to keep going <laughs> down this combo. No, you can't. You this is, I'm telling you, I want to know what's Blade the storm. biggest thing. Bladestorm, Paul. We're going to Bladestorm. Yep. Every time you roll six to hit, you get an additional hit. So this requires magical, magical dice. But you could, in theory, do six wounds with Smite, six wounds with Executioner, roll three sixes to hit with your pistol. If you have fate dice, it's not so crazy. And then each of those hits is two mortals, like we explained, but is also three additional hits, which do have to roll to wound. But those could also be sixes or even just wounds. And then... For each one of those that wounds or does a six, this is more and more mortals. Chalk it on. I've never actually used Blade Storm on this guy because that's ridiculous, but you could. If you had to, well, there you go. You just took out a Tyrant effects. Yeah, you just did Magnus, the whole thing. Yeah, the whole Magnus. The, no piece left, the whole Magnus. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, look, again, I do I do like, you know, using this this character in a, in a way that is not really, I think, what's on people's minds about how that's they would t- typically deploy or employ that character. A lot of people well, just it, think he's a farseer sitting in the back casting powers, and I'm like, no, this guy, this guy's a G. He's going out. Well, we didn't talk about it as much, but there's a couple of hidden little powerhouses in your list. I mean, that freaking Banshee X-Arc is literally the succubus with the triptych whip. Just yeah, That's I, exactly what she is. I just wanted a unit that could go really far and hit something behind a wall. 
and they're the best mm-hmm. thing that can do it. They can advance and charge. That's where fate dice are awesome over here. I'll keep the ones and twos, go six inches, go six plus D six inches, cast ghost mm-hmm. rock, make a mob sec with Will of Ozrigan, go knock an objective and uh, take it, steal some points. They'll die right after, but they hit so hard. It's crazy. And then like, you know, you literally have like a troop master or a solitaire in this Farseer. Um, and not in that it does it all in the combat phase, but it can very can be a missile that just goes in and does a lot more than people expect. This guy single-handedly won me my uh, semifinal match, which was razor close versus Matt Lee's Thousand Sons. He delivered a very clutch Eldritch Storm to kill it to the last Terminator, which my other Farseers in the backfield were never going to get in range of because they're just walking mm-hmm. around seven inches. This guy moved 22 to set this up. And then he went and stole that objective because he moved 22 inches the next turn and just ran over there and shot people with his pistol. Crazy. Uh, he could kill Logan Grimner. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's still counting. He's just going through all his codexes. <laughs> uh, well, I'm just thinking of things that, you know, like, again, you wouldn't think of this little guy doing it. No, so it's very impressive. The list is super deceptive, which I love because it kind of looks like a little battle force of Eldar, but then it all comes together beautifully. Well, I'm digging it. So with with the uh, the Eldari, they are seem to have a lot of ways to pack in some of like you were just talking about that with the with the uh, Banshee Exarch, you know, ways to kind of soup up what it, what it equates to like sergeants and stuff. Yeah. So the, just breaking down the Banshee Exarch, she's got ten attacks, strength five, AP four, two damage. When she charges in, she also does D three plus one mortals. She makes the first one with her crone scream on a two up, and then everyone else attacks. They're just out of control these sergeants these days. Especially well, on that. I mean, do you feel like it, you are putting a lot of eggs in one basket? I guess, but but I guess not. It sounds like you've got. I've got twenty units. I mean, I, I feel that way a little bit with the nine man cannon bikes because they're fragile and they're relatively unwieldy. Like they're they're kind of big and pointy, and there's nine of them, and they're, they're weird models when you're moving nine of them and then it, it's like my to the last and it's not hard to kill and it does need line of sight it only moves six inches after it's done shooting you which only moves six in air quotes here yeah but you're putting so many threats out there yeah like it is a it's a target when i say target rich environment yeah there's just tons of things for them to do or for your opponent to want to do do they have the time to dedicate to doing that while they're trying to and get you off most of the a, objectives. Move blocking is another big part of how it plays. Like, like three jet bikes, not only do they go out there and get me a stranglehold or contest an objective or something, but they'll also stand one inch away from you. My one big plan, a, a trick I use against Tyrion, just to give you a spoiler before we get to part two, um, slow down the, the big bugs, because they don't fly mostly, just the flyer does, or if they have gargoyles. But pyrovores, ra- uh, pyrovores raveners, warriors, malceptors, walkerins, carnifexes, none of that fly. You fly three bikes one inch away from it, none of it heroic intervenes, doesn't really move next turn. You just bought yourself an entire shooting phase. Uh, one of the things uh, we'll talk about, maybe as we go into to, you know talking about specific matchups, but before we wrap up this episode one here, remember, folks, this is part one of a two-part conversation. Uh, you want to join us for for part two is, you know, we talk about the walls. The walls are a big deal, you know, but Eldari also have a lot of access to indirect fire. But indirect fire has recently gone through a metamorphosis, a bit of a change. Uh, do do you think it's just you know, n- not anything that you would ever consider because of the way it can, uh, the way it sits in the meta right now, or are these other methods really so, the superior way of doing? It? The way Eldari, like shooting Eldar, has always been a thing, and the way it beat walls is because it had three Nightsmitters and nine Shadow Weavers or something else oppressive like that. Now that they've nerfed Indirect Fire, which I think is awesome, not so... That's not going to work so well. I was still considering, I was like, maybe Night Spinners are still good. I can buy the Crystal Targeting and ignore the minus one to hit that I'll probably be taking. But um, no, it's like between Armor of Contempt and then just getting a bonus to their armor save, it takes you so long to make real headway. You could still do it, but I think getting a more creative scalpel-like response, like charging Guardians out of a webway or doing whatever the hell else I'm doing with this list is, it, it's has served me a lot better than trying to just play with worse indirect than before. And I also find indirect to be very not nuanced. It's not tasteful. It's kind of just like I'm shooting you and you can't shoot me back. Aha, uh-huh, I'm statting you off the board and I hope it works because if it doesn't, that's the only thing I got. This this plan is a lot more movement centric and positioning centric, which is Allows for a lot more player skill expression, but also means that when things start to go wrong, because in 40k things go wrong all of the time, especially when you roll bad, which does happen, I promise, um, it's important to be able to do something, because if I just had indirect fire, I'd be rolling bad, and then my opponent would not die, and then they would get to me, and I'd be really sad about it. But now I have so many different things... 
Can, Scarab called Terminators just kind of hanging out, scoring points, and yeah, you're feeling real bad about life. Them. I, I need a different dynamic to my army, otherwise I'm too linear. Yeah, fair enough. Well, look, this has been a, a great walk through this list. You obviously piloted it with precision, and we'll get into some of the matchups, and also how you attack and, and kind of prepare yourself going into every game against the, the major factions that people will see out there. Do you mind uh, running down a list, if you have it, of what you faced? You know, maybe not yeah. in each round, but over yeah. the course of the tournament. I just got back like five hours ago we don't sleep in this house i can totally run you through matchup by matchup so i got a super diverse field which was really cool because the balanced data sheet really really created a diverse meta so round one i got sisters very traditional kind of sisters list valor's heart bunch of normal stuff um a little bit of everything round two i got the tyranid menace uh it was a i think it was a leviathan army with uh mal scepters fly rents and a trigon prime carnifexes raveners all the good stuff um that was a challenge. And then round three, really strange, really fun army. It was quite the gatekeeper. It was uh, this guy, Brandon, with nine Paragon Warsuits and 12 Mortifiers and Morven Vol. That oh, was nice. shockingly hard to put down for my army. I thought it would just die. But, well, they get the Armor of Contempt also. I found out. Yeah, you don't say. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> um... That was a tough one. And then in round four, that's when I played Anthony Birdsong in the Eldar Mirror match. That was a that was an awesome tactical game because it was we're both so deadly. Um and then round five, I hit orcs, which are uh showing their lack of balance data sheet love, I suppose. But they were still uh, quite a threat because they went first and just ran at me, and that's always you're under a lot of pressure when that's going on, as Damian Owens told us a couple weeks ago on the podcast. Um, round six, I round six and seven, I had back-to-back thousand sons. First, my opponent was Nick, another Nick, and then Matt. And man, they had very similar lists. They both packed the 20 Terminator package. Um, the rest of it was very different. Matt had Magnus and Nick had way more other stuff, but oh, Magnus, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was, dude. There's a, such a variety of 40k lists going on right now. Um, both of those were definitely most, my two most challenging games of the week. And Thousand Suns posed so many unique problems that I had not been um, considering. Basically, what what the crux that makes that matchup so challenging is first, my my general game plan was like rituals really not going to work because they can deny that so well, and then two, my my plan for not getting shot back is oftentimes screening. Like, throw a Viper out there, and then you can't deep strike with a 9 of it, so you're not going to get line of sight to anything I care about. But yep. Thousand Suns can mortal wound out my Viper really, really quickly. And even if I put two out, they'll mortal wound both of those out. And then they'll teleport into the spot that my Vipers just occupied, and then they'll get all the angles they want and blow up all my bikes. So that was something I was constantly having to fight, but we'll get into that in part two. And then the finals, Paul, save the best for last. We played Blood Angels. <laughs> Well, obviously, you did all right. Uh, congratulations on your victory. Uh, it's, it's been cool. And, and it sounds like it was some tough lists slugging it through. And it's really cool to see the Blood Angels in the finals there, uh, battling it out for supremacy also. Well, of course, we'll talk about that in, in part two a little bit, at least uh, on the Marine side of things. So again, don't forget to like, share, subscribe. If you want to get more involved, check out the website about ways to subscribe to here, part two. If you're not already a member already, we've enjoyed having you. Thanks a lot for listening. Please leave us some five-star reviews out there. That's one way that other people can find us uh, and and join in the conversation here on on part one and part two. Uh, Nick, Adam, anything else y'all want to talk about before we wrap this part up? No, that's pretty much it. I'd just like to give a shout to uh, all of you listeners, thanks so much for being a part of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this little format switch. Adam, thank you so much for coming on and filling in my shoes. I think you did an awesome job. Oh, thanks. My absolute pleasure. Always, always happy. And do check out the Down Under podcast. If you haven't and you're just a listener of this one, we've got Art of War and Broken and Art of War Down Under. Adam is the host of Art of War Down Under. He reviews all the new rules coming out in this game and gets uh, hot players' takes on uh, how the game state is. Uh, so check yeah. that out or down under. I've got a bit of a question I'll put to you guys on the way out. We've got this the next week we have both night books and a campaign book coming out. And I don't know what the hell I'm gonna review first. So if you are a, if you are not a subscriber, you could sign up and you can have your say on what the hell I review in what order and the guests I get on. Because for, for stuff like nights and the campaign books, I can get anybody on. Anybody you wanna you wanna hear about, you wanna hear the opinions of, you can just hit me up and, and vote in our polls that are gonna be all over all the discords and um the Facebook pages. There's there's so much to love about what's happening in Art of War at the moment. Yeah, it's absolutely awesome. And if you're not a member of the War Room, please, I implore you to check it out. Not only do you get access to the Part 2 podcasts, but you also get tons of faction clinics, strategy sessions, coaching games, and an awesome community in our Discord server with uh, some of the best players in the world and a bunch of other people who are 
very positive, like-minded individuals. We keep that thing nice and clean. Uh, it's, it's, in my opinion, one of the best places in the world to learn about 40K. We'll see y'all soon. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.